You're listening to episode three of Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. This is Mark Lintenmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And the beautiful voice that you're hearing, behind my words, belongs to a man named Kevin Godley. Though you may not recognize that name, I guarantee that you have seen some of the videos that he has directed. He's worked with U2 and Sting and Paul McCartney, Snow Patrol, Herbie Hancock. He directed the Beatles' Real Love video. He also, at this point, is CEO and inventor of Whole World Band, which is a very cool iOS application that supports collaborative musical and video endeavors. It's free. You should definitely check it out. Before most of that happened, in the late 70s and through most of the 80s, he was in a duo called Godly and Cream. He did most of the singing, and Lol Cream played most of the instruments. This song, Cry, was their big hit from 1985. Before that, in the mid and early 70s, Kevin and Lol were half of a band called 10CC, which were a very big deal at the time, one of the bands that was thought of as the next Beatles. So Kevin has many years' worth of good stories, and he's not really an ex-musician. In fact, the first projects I'm going to talk about with him on this episode are one on audio play that he produced and does the music for, called Hog Fever by Richard LaPlante. And then a mere decade ago, we're going to talk about a musical collaboration he did with another 10CC member, Graham Gouldman, called GG06. Now you'll notice this episode is quite a bit longer than episode number two. Episode two is how it's actually supposed to be. That's how the format is supposed to go. But this discussion with Kevin just was so entertaining that we just couldn't help ourselves. We had to keep going. Hello, Kevin. Hello. Thanks for doing this. That's all right. Before uh, we start the formal thing, who else do you know? I don't care if they're famous or not. Uh, that would you would personally like to hear them talk about their songs in the way that we're going to try to do here. I'd love to hear Tom Waits talk about his songs. I would love to hear Tom Waits too. But it'd probably go on for a long time. And I probably wouldn't believe a word, but it'd be very entertaining. <laughs> I would love to hear Marvin Gaye speak about anything, but that's highly unlikely. All right, let me... Revise the question. Not in an ideal world, who would like, oh, like yeah. to hear, but who should I be hitting up to do this next? Iggy Pop. Good suggestion. Yeah. Well, it's the closest we're going to get to Bowie. Well, yeah. It's we've very got sad. That is, someone like that dies, a bit of you dies with him. Well, if a bit of you died with him, then I will conversely say a bit of him lives in you and all that. <laughs> so thank you as a representative of your generation of British guys that live through what you, what you lived through. We'll, we'll live through the, uh, the popular music wars of 1970. Well, I it, do. Was, uh, it was hugely different then, hugely different. When we were making music in our pomp, as it were, less was more. But now it seems sometimes that more is less. Well, speaking of, let's talk about your first song. Your most recent thing, I was pretty excited. I thought that based on the research that I had done, that you had more or less stopped making music in 1988. And one of the interesting topics to talk about is to what degree one's creative passion, you know, usually musicians or any kind of artists say, well, I do this because I have to do this. But clearly, at least in your case, the energy can be transferred to different outlets. And I don't think that's that unusual. It's just that you happen to be talented and have fallen into opportunities so that the video thing was exciting enough that doing the music all the time did not seem as essential. I don't want to make you go through a whole explanation of what happened in 88 or something if you don't want to do that. But having yeah. seen that you did a little bit, so one of the songs we're going to go through today is what you did with Graham Gouldman in 2006, GG06. And I thought that was, again, it. You did six songs and then 
found other things to do and you run this corporation, <laughs> this whole world band thing and have other things to do and just didn't need music anymore. So it was pretty exciting to find out last night <laughs> that actually you had done something this year, something that had been just released, granted only a handful of songs, but it was exciting to hear and that it was the first thing that you'd done that did not involve a co-writer. That's right. I mean, writing songs is an interesting process, period. Whether you're doing it on your own or whether you're doing it with somebody else or a group of people, you are essentially sculpting air. So how you choose to do it, it depends on how you feel at the time. And yeah, you're right to a degree that I'm lucky in that whatever the creative impulse is, it can come out of me in different ways. If I was in a band, I'd be called the four taps as opposed to the four tops because I can turn on a number of different faucets and different stuff will come out, but it's essentially the same stuff, just in different form. So just to address GGO6, the point in that was that Graham had asked me, this probably around about 2005, if I'd be interested in writing a lyric for a tune he'd just written. And I said, I'd love to. I'd absolutely love to because... Even though, you know, I have other interests and, and pictures are just as interesting as music, music does kind of build up inside me, even though I'm not always aware of it. So that offer of actually doing something musical was intriguing. So he sent me a track and I wrote a lyric, but he didn't use it because it was too dark. <laughs> but it got my juices flowing again and an interest. So sort of maybe a year later, I approached Graham and said, do you fancy writing some songs? Um, I had no idea when I spoke to him what the songs would be for, whether it was going to be for other people or whether it was going to be for us or, or anything. Just the process of sitting down and writing songs suddenly was something that I'd missed. And that was the whole point behind it. And it was kind of like slipping on an old pair of trousers in that it was nice to sit down with somebody that I knew who I didn't have to get to know, and we didn't have to circle each other to find out what we were both good at and how we could complement each other. We just slipped back into something we'd done a long time ago. And the truth is that back then in 10CC, we didn't actually write together more than maybe three times. So this was unfinished business. It was great fun, and every track that we wrote and recorded kind of grew in stature in our own minds. This was slightly better than the last one, or the next one's going to be a little bit more interesting than the previous one, and so on and so forth. We just became more and more adventurous, and we kind of took on the roles that we had when we were in the band. My role was to kind of drag Graham into an area he hadn't been dragged into before, maybe get a bit more experimental, whereas Graham's job was to kind of stabilize me. And that way of doing things kind of worked. It was easier, too, because there was less pressure. Yeah, I was just listening to some of his solo stuff last night, his recent solo stuff, and man, yeah. that is tasteful as all get up. Yeah. That'll convince people to stick around for the third song <laughs> that we're going to talk about. Let's go back to the first one, the most recent thing, December 2015, from Hog Fever. This is yeah. Confession. Let's say just a few words about it, and then we'll play it, and then we'll talk about it in more depth. So this is part of an audio play that you arranged with Richard LaPlante, who wrote the original book and is the main narrator. And the character has been in therapy. This is sort of at the climax of the book, and he's just gone out on a ledge. This doesn't actually appear the way it is as a song. It's not that the audiobook stops and breaks into song, but this is mostly dialogue right from the book that the character actually says. Yeah. Hog Fever is... 
essentially it's a film without pictures. As you rightly said, it's an audio experience. It's listening to a film on headphones or nice speakers. And there are five episodes, each lasting about 25 minutes. And the soundtrack of the film, which includes the song you were describing, Confessions. But the interesting thing about it for me was it is one of four songs that I've written on my own, which I'd never actually done before. And how it came about was there is some very gentle electric piano chords taking place behind the main character, Robert Lords's attempted suicide, where he's sat on a ledge outside his psychiatrist's office, and he's thinking of throwing himself off the ledge, and he's talking about his past. He's confessing his past. So essentially, in the play, in the film, it's a piece of dialogue over some chords. But I knew there was a song in it. I knew there was a song in there, and... All I really did was adapt the dialogue that I'd written for Robert to speak into the form of a song. It took a little while, but it actually worked. Maybe I was thinking that subconsciously when I was writing the dialogue, but it actually worked, and it was a pleasure to do. The chords are very, very simple, and I just sang this thing. We recorded it maybe a day, and I'm kind of pleased with it it's it, i can always tell when something works for me really well when i feel like i'm inside the project where i can't think of anything else for a period of time this is the thing that drives me this is the thing that the last thought i have before i go to sleep and the first thought i have when i wake up in the morning and for a few days at least it was this song and it excited me whether it's any good or not it's not really for me to say but i'm kind of pleased with it I think it showcases my voice quite well, which seems to be working reasonably well at the moment. So, yeah, and it's called Confessions. I'm a fraud And all the talking in the world won't change that Not gonna change the world as a writer Cause I like the sound of my own voice And I get to feel like somebody for a while And I cheat just like my dad And if you want to make good in this world You gotta punch above your weight, son And if you get hit and you don't fit just listen Polish till it's perfect Cause nothing else is Then a braided little man How he liked that word Sure sounded sweeter than lying The whole polishing thing was a it's fantasy He always had some cool looking rides And I got to drive them on a Sunday But there when I was He was just cleaning rich folks' cars And he wasn't quite the down-home dream dad We all wanted him to be he was laying uptown bitches in every motel across the state And polishing the Edsel 
as he called it, was his dirty little secret. In the end, Mom threw him out and wrote a book about it, called Father's Till It's Perfect, because nothing else is. Two years on, Pop caught something off an heiress. He was banging in Kansas and died on his own in a town called Poverty. Me, I guess it's in the genes. Father's till it's perfect. There's nothing else is. Father's till it's perfect. There's nothing else is. Father's till it's perfect. Nothing else is Man upgraded a little So the libretto here, I know so much of your stuff is just driven by lyrics. I mean, that by necessity, yeah. given that you describe yourself. So some of this, the insight that I come to this in advance is because I did read through at least the parts about the music in Space Cake, the biography that you just put out in May of 2015. Correct. So pretty up to date. You talk about how you tried bass as a kid, didn't really catch on and really latched onto drums, became a really good, versatile studio drummer. And obviously you've got a great voice. But that your role then when you were in 10CC and other collaborative arrangements is just to warble random things with your voice, you said, and to pound on things and to write words. That's a little hard to reconcile with the fact that here you're just taking a libretto straight from the book, right? Yeah. So it's a different kind of project, or at least you're taking words that exist, but then instead of coming up with a 10 minute rap like snack attack or something like that you're just laying them so that the rhythm actually makes sense in the background yeah are we still talking about confessions yes hog fever is a project it's about two and a half hours long it's not an album in the traditional sense there is music in it but it serves to underscore the plot more than anything else it's an adventure in filmmaking for blind people that's what it is and we actually touched on this medium before not as successfully as this, I don't think, in the album Law Cream and I did called Consequences. There was an element of that in Consequences. There was yep. a play slap dab in the middle of it where Peter Cook plays a number of different roles. So for me, it's not a hugely new concept, but it's a concept that we didn't really take anywhere that meant anything back then. So being given the opportunity to do it properly now is a huge carrot for me. It wasn't my idea to do it. I wrote a screenplay with Richard LaPlante based on his book, Hog Fever. Mm -hmm. And we could never get it placed. The screenplay was too out there. But we always felt there was something interesting in it. And he was doing an audio book or planned to do a basic audio book of Hog Fever. And after sitting in front of a microphone for a few hours, I thought, fuck this, why don't we just do the screenplay instead? And that's how that came about. But doing the music for it was great fun, as well as acting in it and directing it and writing it and all that. But Confessions, to me anyway, it's an important step for me. I mean, there are other songs on there, but this is the most formed one. It's, mm -hmm. the, it's the one that's sort of less improvised. It has a form to it, and it's what I would call a song, whereas some of the other stuff isn't quite a song. And it's not about me. It's not 
we'll probably get into that, but over the years, my lyric writing has changed from fiction and fantasy to something a little more realistic and personal. But this is still fictitious because I'm singing the words of another person. I'm trying to get into somebody else's head. Fictitious personal. That's not actually fictitious at all. The scene's fiction. But a lot of hog fever is rooted in Robert's life or Richard LaPlante's life. So there's an element of truth in there all the time. Well, I noticed that in turning into a song that stands on its own outside the context of the book, you've made it into something fairly serious. There's no mention of the third testicle, which is in the dialogue that actually happens over this music in that part of the book. The only thing that makes me distinctive is my third testicle. That seems like it would kill the mood (laughs) that you were trying to set up here. Some of the song, perhaps, on another album in another lifetime. <laughs> and even though the last half of the song is the biography of this fictional character and uh, what, how his dad messed him up, the way that you start it, you know, I'm a fraud and talking isn't going to change that. I'm not going to change the world as a writer is something that I think is pretty obviously resonant to anybody that sits down and tries to write things that... Uh, I don't know. Well, feeling like a fraud is, of course, more universal than that. Of the feeling like you're supposed to have some role in the adult world, and then just the whole creative instinct seems to countermand that. Well, it's that whole thing about will they find me out at some point? You know, is someone going to come? Sorry, Kevin, you've had God knows how many years of being creative artists, but time's up. Come in number three, your time is up. You're not really an artist at all. Get back to your job at the bank. You know, it's that kind of a moment. But, uh, yeah, I think any writer worth his salt, regardless of whether it's books, novels, screenwriting or songwriting or even journalism to a degree, if they're any good, they're always questioning what they do. Always. Because that's how you get the best out of yourself. If you always think you're great, then you're probably not. And I'm picturing as somebody who's been in demand in the video industry for so many years that you're regarded as just a force in the business and you run your own business with the software development, you know, so you're an adult (laughs) age wise. You're certainly an adult yet, (laughs) yet, you know, you've gotten to in so many situations and very explicitly. And certainly when you're doing the godly and cream stuff, it seems like the goal of your way of creating is pure play. Like if it's not pure play, if it's not creative, if it's not discovering something new, if it is business, then well, why even bother doing it? Just move on to something else. Yes. Have you ever wondered why people play music as opposed to work music? It's precisely for that reason. It's because it is play. It's not the stuff that I do is vocational. It's not a job. And you're quite right. If anything becomes, oh, God, I've got to do this. I've got to find a way to do this. If it gets to that point where you think, I, I will definitely move on. But as I said earlier, it's about immersing yourself in whatever it is you're doing at the time. And if the immersion is complete, then you can try anything. I guess it's down to your own standards. If you have a standard of what you're trying to achieve with everything that you do, there's a point where it becomes comfortable. So you, you are free enough to try anything and you know you won't screw it up. <laughs> But it's getting to that point that is the hard part. I think Confessions was a tricky one because I didn't know if it was going to work at all. So I started singing it and it maybe took a couple of hours when I realized, actually, this is, I could kind of see it. I could kind of see the shape it might take. And 
Then it was fine to try it different ways, try this there, try the other there, because I knew I couldn't fuck it up, because I could always go back. Now, in terms of composing the music, you said you set up this basic keyboard thing as background music before deciding that it was going to be an actual song? Yeah, yeah, and then I sort of improvised it a bit of sort of just moaning over the background. But, you know, it was essentially film music to underscore the character's monologue. But I kind of figured there was a song in it. So I just took an MP3 of the chords home and just started thinking about what the song might be about and just immediately gravitated to the dialogue and switched it around and trimmed it a little bit and just sang stuff against the MP3. There was going to be a guide for what I was going to try. I didn't want to work it out too well until we actually started recording because for me the recording process delivers as much to the finished product as the writing. I didn't want to go in with a finished piece. I wanted to keep it relatively open and it was just trying it over and over again and honing it and sharpening it and changing it slightly as we went through the process that made it work. There was a point where I knew it would work and that for me was a big thrill. It was like, oh shit, I can write something on my own. Are you playing keyboards at this point, or is this programmed, or how, how did this work in terms of adding the first the main riff and then adding the little cello, and then eventually the you know opens up and becomes higher strings? Okay, well, how did that mechanically work for you if you're not a keyboardist? I'm not a keyboardist, but most of the music in Hog Fever is atmosphere, mm-hmm. and it's me just playing around on a keyboard with samples. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just tapping notes. And if it sounds good, we keep it. That's exactly the way I play keyboard, that I play one <laughs> chord at a time. I couldn't yeah. play it live to save my life, but I can fake a part. Yeah. <laughs> I just am willing to punch in enough. You'll probably never get it again. So it's just that. It's just messing around with the keyboard until you get something that works with whatever's going on in the action or in the dialogue. And if it feels right, then we keep it. And it was pretty much that. For the monologue, I was just a... You know, they hit that, you know, that chord, then that chord, then I'll try that chord. And then the guy I'm working with, a guy called Ivan Jackman, mm-hmm. is a little bit more musical than I am. Uh, he said, well, actually, why don't we do that bit twice? So there's a note that's slightly wrong in there. I'll correct that. And that's exactly what happened. I just clanged around for a little bit. So you're giving him the actual MIDI track. It's not just recorded bits. You can actually digitally. Yeah, it's, well, I. I don't know if it's MIDI or not. I was actually playing to the dialogue, mm-hmm. as it were. So in a sense, the dialogue was my click track. And I just kept doing it until so something sounded good. Then Ivan cleaned it up. And then I took that away. And then what I wrote to go with it, or how I adapted the monologue to go with it, didn't quite fit with the structure. So we just changed the structure. We added a bar here and subtracted a bar there. But essentially, it was the same piece of music, just adapted slightly to accommodate dialogue turning into lyrics. So maybe we can keep talking about the songwriting techniques involved in this by comparing it with the next song, which we should introduce, which is going back to 1978. Okay. Uh, You had picked from the album L, which is the first proper short rock album, a proper one that's not a triple album filled with atmospheric stuff, and uh, the consequences (laughs) is a trip, but... uh, yeah, but, uh, L is, you know, I'm very surprised that I had not heard this prior to a couple of weeks ago when we were researching this interview, because all the bands adjacent to this Roxy music that you have guys, Roxy music that play on this album and the album after this yeah. and Bowie and all the 
the stuff that sounds like this is some of my favorite stuff, but somehow this got overlooked. And I don't know if it's the fact that what Godly and Cream then became in the 80s, that that's what the only thing that I remembered was Cry and that kind of stuff. But this was a treasure trove I found, this album and the one after it. Well, I'm glad you feel like that. I agree with you. Of all the albums that we made at Post Consequences, this is my favorite one because we sound dangerous again. I think we were writing for our lives. <laughs> at the time of recording this, we had quite rightly come out of Consequences, which was a heaven's gate of a record. It was a monumental experience that failed monumentally. So this was a period of reassessment. And L stands for learner. All right. It's called Punch Bags. I would say it falls into the category of operetta, like the One Night in Paris that you'd done a few years earlier, that it's a story. There are two distinct movements here. It kind of goes on. It's not actually that super long a song. I think it's only four or five minutes long. There's a lot packed in there. I was playing this to my daughter, and she was who's 12, and she's very into musicals, and she thought that this and 5 o'clock in the morning and some of the other stuff I was playing are like, yeah, this could be the beginning of a musical. This is a... <laughs> wow, some pretty heavy musical, but yeah. Punchback, yeah. I mean, again, that is based on my experiences as a kid. I was bullied mercilessly when I was at uh, school. It was a cathartic song to write, and I've written two or three songs about bullying. But this was the first. And again, it was something about the L album was about myself and Lord Cream as people, who we were, our beliefs, our experiences. It wasn't a bunch of stories or cynical ideas or comedies. It was real. But I take your point, it does... It's a bit sort of Doris Day meets Kurt Vile in a way. And I mean the original Kurt Vile. It's particularly odd because for the main part of the song, there are no drums. Well, it sounds like it should be. If I brought a note to school that said my days were numbered, they'd leave me numb and bleeding or strangle me with jump leads. In my world, the birds don't sing, the bells don't ring, the bells don't ring.
This is definitely still in the age of prog rock or post prog or something. I don't know. What, how did that whole symphonic rock thing affect you? Was that just part of the post Beatles psychedelic? <laughs> it was just something that was in your blood or was there something you were consciously trying to do? It seems at this point, it's not that you're trying to break the barriers of musicality. I don't know. T- say something about what you were trying to do here in terms of the innovation. I don't know. I think we were always fighting the notion of a traditional structure in writing mm. a song. You know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, verse, chorus, fade. That was always boring to us. So everything that we did after a certain point was pushing the boundaries of structure, not just for the sake of it, but because it became a natural instinct to us. It became an impulse. And this is probably a good example of that. And because of that, it does tend to sound a little bit musical. It does tend to sound a little bit extreme. But... It has a kind of chorus in there somewhere, but I think because of the way we recorded a lot of L, the recording was how we wrote it. We didn't write it, then go in and record it. The two things happened simultaneously. We would record something, and that element of recording would spark something else in the song, which would then spark something else in the recording process. So it was a a reactive process, the recording and the songwriting were happening simultaneously. And as most of the good things that happened, this was like a riff that happened that might go with this other riff that we had yesterday, and let's try a bit of that, and I'll try a bit of this, and off we go. 
It was a very instinctive album for us, which was the opposite of what we'd just come from, which was very detailed and carefully put together. This was slapdash in comparison. And I think the song was written pretty quickly and the lyrics came pretty quickly because they're real. So I could summon the emotions. Well, you had said in your book that these were stream of consciousness lyrics, but there are things in them. You know, if I brought a note to school that said my days were numbered, they'd leave me numb and bleeding. That kind of numbered and numb, that doesn't sound stream of consciousness. That sounds deliberate. Well, you don't know how my stream of consciousness works. <laughs> the initial stream, the initial vomit that hits the page isn't necessarily going to be what you end up releasing, but it is the substance of what you're going to be doing. So it may have come out like uh, that said my days were fucked, they'd leave me numb and vomiting or strangled me with guitar leads. It may not have been exactly the same, but once you see it written down, you say, well, actually, well, let's try that word there or this word there. That's better. That's better. That's better. Without destroying what you're trying to say, you're constantly trying to make it better. But the secret is to do it in a way that doesn't outsmart yourself. Now, when you say this was recorded and written at the same time, that's surprising me because it, the structure reminds me a lot of a Frank Zappa song, who yeah. I know he was very meticulous that he would definitely not have simply recorded, I think, for most of his material, something with this kind of multi-movement piece. Yeah. So does that mean like the first verse idea would be fleshed out first and that would be recorded? Or did you have the whole structure down before you were adding the layers and finalizing lyrics? Ah, good question. I think we may have had the whole structure down, mm -hmm. but it got that way because of the elements that we were writing, if you know what I mean. And then we knew once that it was recorded, it may change shape. We were trying to get in touch with something that we'd lost, or at least I was, with this album. I felt that what had happened to us with the Consequences album, which we'll talk about, sure, we locked ourselves away for uh, 18 months and got lost in this project, and the world had changed. And that's a terrible thing. One of the things, one of the great things about making popular music is that it, it stays contemporary, and not to know what's going on is bad for you, I think. And we'd lost touch with everything that had been going on. So we emerged with this huge classical piece that was utterly irrelevant. <laughs> so this was an attempt to find the modernity in ourselves that somehow got lost in something that wasn't that modern. I think I, I was driving this project more than Law was. I think Law was more musical, whereas I was looking for something a little more hard-edged mm -hmm. that had something grittier to say, something more more realistic to say. And it felt like now. It felt like people who belonged in the here and now as opposed to the land of George Gershwin, which is where we were. Musically, I hear that more maybe in some of the other songs on this album where you were putting down tape loops and you know, very early, it seems a lot of your innovations are things you might say, oh, that's just a synth or something. Like, no, no, this is five years before they could do that. This is, yeah. <laughs> this is much cooler than it might be obvious in terms of the technical innovation that went into making this. But on this, I hardly think you were listening to current radio and saying, I think between the first verse and second verse, it should go, mama, 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 because that's something, you know, that's not a, that's something that's out of your own brain. That is not a reaction to the culture, it sounds like, the particulars of this song. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that now was natural to us. I mean, just to go back to the subject of writing, when anyone starts writing songs, and we did from quite an early age, we wrote songs like 
our heroes wrote songs because we didn't know any better. Um, our early songs sounded like the Beatles or that era because we thought that's what we should sound like because they were our touchstones. But as you progress as a writer, at some point, and anything can make this happen, you discover what it is in your own personality that can deliver something unique. And once you've discovered it, it never goes away. That, that's what comes naturally now, not as opposed to what somebody else is doing. That came from making an album very quickly where we didn't have time to think. Well, and it was very enlightening in your book that as a studio musician, the entirety of 10CC being studio musicians in the early 70s before the 10CC albums proper, just how much stuff. So you, you turned me on to Ramesses, this crazy. So basically you were, among many other things, a backing group for a whole prog album, you know, of the most excessive psychedelic variety, as well as you mentioned a bunch of people really doing musical theater stuff so that a lot of this became what you then, if you're not thinking very hard and are just going instinctually, a lot of strange stuff has been poured into your instincts that then can come out in these interesting ways. Well, yeah, I mean, the early days of being a house band at Strawberry Studios, it was, I think I say it in the book, it was like the stuff that came in through the door was more like Broadway Danny Rose Mm -hmm. than it was... Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. It was an extraordinary collection of ridiculousness. Football teams, ventriloquists, comedians, not the stuff of rock and roll. So it was bringing a rock and roll sensibility to this madness, and some of the madness stayed behind. Well, I also feel like whenever you're kind of being really honest, embarrassingly honest, not looking at the trends, just putting what's really in your gut, often you channel things from childhood and they could be commercial jingles. They could be, so this kind of explains to me some of the fifties fascination. I know you weren't five years old in the fifties or where did Donna, I know you said that was one, I don't want to get too off topic here because this is a song we're not going to play for them, but that was one that you'd written in a half an hour. And this was the first hit that 10 CC had. It's sort of the reason that you were able to do the rest of it. And that was more of a fifties pastiche. Was that because that was the thing that was still floating around the culture, but it was no longer cool. No. As somebody in 1973 or whatever, when you were doing this, what role did 50s music, I'm trying to figure out, you know, I know right now, you know, so Taylor Swift can put out an album called 1989 that draws on these old, and and actually make it lit. Like, it sounds like something that in some ways actually could have come out in 1989. It uses a lot of those same sounds. It uses a lot of the same sensibility, but can still be very modern. And it sounds like that's kind of what you were doing maybe in a more jokey way with the 50s stuff. But tell me a little about when you were doing this stuff in the 70s, what the relationship was to the 50s stuff on the one hand. And then in this song, I see more clearly like Frank Sinatra jazz. I mean, in my world, the birds don't sing, the bells don't ring. Like this is (laughs) this is uh, Dean Martin crooning here. Is this you channeling your subconscious that had taken all this stuff in, or how did these influences get in here? Yeah, it all get in there because you hear it. And it goes in, it's like tipping stuff into a food blender. And what we did, there's no value judgments made on anything. There's no sense of, well, you can't ever do this in a song. And if you do that, it's not kind of current. Or it's just stuff that's in you for whatever reason, but you've been exposed to it up to that point in your life. And it's all in there. So you press the blending button and it blends it. And if you're lucky, at some point, it'll spit something out that's usable. And that's kind of what happened with songs like Donna. It's like, okay, we've got to write a song. We've got to do a B-side. Let's so lol with strum some chords. And I just kind of sing something over the top. And oh, 
that's kind of interesting. It sounds like a 50s song. Okay, so how can we distort that slightly? Mm-hmm. So there was no, other than it sounded a bit like a 50s pastiche, there was nothing, that wasn't a, a value judgment. It's not an ironic 50s song. No, it's just, it's okay. just like, oh, we can, sounds a bit like a 50s song. Let's just follow that and see where it leads. And uh, it led to number two in the UK charge, which is not a bad start. But it, it wasn't like, we knew it had something of that because it was, what, CA minor FG7, chord sequence or something. But, of course, it wasn't as straightforward as that. The next record we brought out was similar to that. Same template, but it was a complete tank. It wasn't a hit at all. It's called Johnny Don't Do It. It's probably a better song in terms of that genre, but it failed completely because it didn't have that magic, the sudden surprise, the, oh... That's interesting. I haven't heard that for a while. We were trying to copy it. We were trying to become formulaic, which was disastrous. You know, I see not just in your book, but in accounts of anybody that was a potential hit maker, you know, from that time or even quite a bit more recently, there's a feedback loop, of course. So you produce something and it's not just do I like it or not. It's did it resonate? Did it become a hit like the last thing was? And just the way artists are even still now described as are they successful in other words did they have a lot of hits or something and i think we're getting more and more they're always going to be a i don't know always but a certain mass culture taylor swift or somebody that really everybody still has heard of but it's gotten so fragmented now that so the last couple projects that you've done and i know this is largely just because you're in the position you are and you already make your living off of videos and are very comfortable with that so that you could do something like the gg06 and just release that straight through the website and I don't care if it's a hit and I don't care. Let's just do this for creativity's sake and the people that have already heard of you, the, yeah. you know, our fans, they'll be able to track that down. And then uh, likewise with this hog fever thing that it seems like it's more pure because you're not relying on this feedback loop of is it a hit or not. But in some ways it seems like it was also very helpful to you at the time that you shifted to L, which is something now it seems in retrospect you're happier with from consequences by yeah. paying attention to this feedback mechanism, that having some feedback is good. Well, it's not necessarily feedback. It's more an awareness. It's more, you know, you can be indulgent, you can be self-indulgent. But there is a point where it ceases to become constructive, I consider myself an artist, but to a degree, we're, I'm a commercial artist, if you know what I mean. I'm, I'm operating, why, if, I, if I'm an artist, why bother recording anything and why bother putting it out if I don't want people to hear it? That's kind of self-defeating. It wasn't simply a matter of thinking, oh shit, the last record didn't work because it wasn't contemporary enough. We better start listening to something contemporary. For me, at any rate, at the time, I was enjoying what was contemporary more than consequences. Mm-hmm. I was actually, I was kind of pissed off that when the whole new wave thing happened, the whole punk thing happened, that I wasn't 20 because I was kind of excited by it. I thought, this is fucking exciting. They're turning things on their head, and that's a great place to be, whereas we, in our own way, were still carrying the mantle of what rock had become. And fuck, I got it. I got that whole thing. But, you know... I couldn't do anything about it. What am I going to do? Cut my hair off and pretend to be something I'm not. It wasn't that. It's like probably seeing one of the first Cubist paintings back then when Cubism arrived and suddenly it clicking. It's like, fuck, yes, this is modern art. This is what it's all about. This is what I should be doing. 
So it was a response, if you like, as opposed to a commercial move. It was the way people are saying things today is more exciting than the way we've just said them. And it's more valid. So let's understand that and move towards it a little bit, but in our way. Well, and I can certainly see that just in the emotional honesty and the pretty visceral elements in here in the in the lyrics, at least. So what is, if I can ask, what is the polythene bag treatment exactly? Is that... Oh, pulling a bag over your head so you can't breathe. Okay, I figured something horrific like that. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got to just to, to quickly run through the structure and then we'll move on to the next song. So, I mean, we have this tango sort of thing at the beginning with some six count measures in it. We've got the, I like how the mama mama is just transition. It's like... Clear my palate so now a different thing can happen. That you could put anything (laughs) before or after that. It's just a a way to sort of blast the audience for a second. You have this fast, the Dean Martin part, the in my world, the birds don't sing. And the fact that that happens once and then never comes back is just fascinating to me. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm glad it never came back because... You know, I'm, I'm talking about, I've got the lyrics up here, actually. Where is it? Well, it, it's reflected in the second half of the song, because it's yeah. do, do, do that, do, do, do that. Like, it's still a swing thing yeah. for the second half of the song. Although it's interesting then, so you've got the uh, pre-chorus and a chorus with the fourth form atrocities punch bag. And then, yeah, the drums go away. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns into this, you know, based on this, you said it's actually a bass. It's not just a low-played guitar. It's a distorted bass riff. That works. You know why that works for me? That works for me because... Drums put the floor in for you. You know, you've got something to stand on. Take the drums away and you, you can't keep your balance somehow. I wasn't sure that it was bass because it seems like it's at least bass played in a fairly high octave. And the fact that it has distortion on it means it doesn't sound like, a, you know, it doesn't have that low. It, it's not providing that floor, just like you said, but it's rhythmically tight enough. I think it's a bass going through some distortion, as I remember. It may have been doubled with a guitar, but... But losing the drums meant you don't quite know where you are and you can't stand up, you know? The reverb that's on that part, that actually fills the space that the drums would fill. I, mm. I feel like that the sonic space that having a cymbal in there would fill at least yeah. is, you know, the fact that you've got these tight other instruments going on. You've got three guitars going through that section, I think, for a lot of it, layering. Just lyrically going toward the end, yes. the booming around the corridor. So like, Gaudiamas Igitur? Gaudiamas Igitur. So this was an actual, I, I looked this up, let's be happy while we are young. Is this the kind of thing that you would actually sing in school, or is it just a reference to the fact that it's about the joys of youth? No, Gordi Amasigito is a school song. Okay. In morning assembly, the whole school would sing, Gordi Amasigito. It's, you know, a Latin song. It's like something out of Goodbye, Mr. Chips. That's uh, very school, very English. Right. Yes, very British. I had to look up what fourth form that that's junior high for American kids or middle school. Exactly. <laughs> the worst time. It has not changed. Yeah, you're spotting, you're young. You're just starting to get a few pubic hairs through. It's not good. So most of it is straight up about bullying, but then totally, it seems a couple of the spots in here make it sound like, oh, yeah, bursting, bursting through the crap, I know they'll never let me have. Like, that it's generalizing. It's not just about being in this situation and bullies, but it's about life holding you down, feeling like that you're just never going to get out of that situation. Well, it's the first example in your life or in my life of being prevented from doing something, of feeling like, fuck, I'm never going to get out of this shit. I'm just looking at, yeah, oh, God, I wish that I had normal ears and clearer skin. I'm praying for the day when handsome's out and ugly's in. (laughs) 
To Jesus I pray for strength to survive your Christian soldiers smell blood. God, man, was I fucked up as a kid or what? <laughs> Another element that comes up in the book is just being Jewish in this, yeah. this culture. <laughs> I wasn't Jewish. I was Jewish, you know, which is like... <laughs> right. So a non-practicing ancestral Jew, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, you know, kids are horrible creatures. They pick on anyone. They'll do anything to make sure it's not them that's picked on. So if you're slightly weak or you're slightly artistic or if, you're, if you don't play football, forget about it, you know, you're dead. And uh, fuck... Just reading these lyrics now, I'm scared already. I'm looking around. And it ends, you know, it's not a hopeful <laughs> note that it ends on. It just ends unresolved quarterly. Yeah. You couldn't just slap a little major chord at the no. end to imply some eventual resolution. No. no. Can I please get up now? No. When? Yeah. No one's answered the question yet. So while we're talking about experiences when you were a kid, that moves us nicely to the third song. This uh, Barry's Shoes from GG06 that we've already talked about, yeah. uh, you and Graham Gouldman getting together. And did this follow the method that you describe? I would assume mostly established with Lol Cream of being together in the same room and kind of getting the instrumentalist getting a riff going and you no. mouthing some things over it? Or did you already have these lyrics in place here? It was three steps towards where I am now when I was working with Graham. For the most part, I would have kind of three quarters of a song together i would have maybe a tune but what i didn't have was the music what i didn't have was the chords what i didn't have was the elements that make it work mm -hmm. um, and this was one of those and it was only by playing it and trying it that we made it work the hardest thing for me in writing a song is the very fact that i don't play an instrument it's not easy to write a song with drums you know so you need to play something and so working with Graham is great because he knows every chord that's ever existed and will exist. So you can try anything. So did you pick up enough basic music theory as you were going to just say, oh, no, no, do the relative minor there? No, I didn't know what to call it. I was just say that doesn't work, try that. And he would. No, that still doesn't work, try that. That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> make it go up yes make it go up because i'm gonna go down exactly and then we'll try something else no that's terrible i'll change the tune a bit to fit with what you're doing i'll change the chord to fit you know everyone writes in different ways but what i'm trying to say was i had something that was partially formed when i went to graham with these songs each time we got together we had something to start with it was never a random experience and this song barry shoes Again, it's about a moment of reality when I was a kid. The big picture is essentially when you are a, a young Jewish kid who doesn't want to go into the family business, doesn't want to become his father, is very attracted to the notion of being an artist, of being in the music world, and living that bohemian life, if you like, and the notion of being unconventional. Whereas being a young Jewish kid at the time, the opposite was true. You had to be, you had to prove yourself. And uh, I was expected to go into the family business. And this was about being a temple, as you would call it. And one of my friends was there. And of course, we were all dressed in suits and ties and etc. But he was wearing these outrageous fucking shoes. And it's like, you know, I would look down the shoes and go, fuck, that's where I want to be. Not up there with God. And it was like, that was a sort of moment. And it's like, I've got to make a choice here. I'm going to go with the shoes. 
but I have nothing to atone for. Is this you back on drums for yeah. the first time in quite a long time? Yeah, it doesn't sound that great. I'm a bit rusty. Oh, no, I think it has a great groove. I mean, is this something... So I have drums set up. Drums are about my fourth instrument. It's not something I'm particularly good at at all, although I've used them for some recordings. But it's the thing that I use for pleasure probably more than any other instrument. It's just a nice aerobic way to blow off steam. Do you have drums set up in your house still or, or no? I don't because... Drums are the worst instrument to play on your own and they're the worst instrument to play in a house for obvious reasons, because they're loud, set the dogs barking, and you'll be playing drums you want to play with somebody. So for that reason, I wish I played a harmonica, but no, I play the drums. I don't even have a proper kit anymore, which is a shame. So with this playing with Graham again, were you jamming on drums and guitar or was this like, oh, we just laid a click track down and then you went in after the fact and put on drums? Oh, we didn't lay a click track down. We had the structure down the song. The song Mm -hmm. was written. And once the song was written, we just went in the studio and recorded it. I played drums, Graham played guitar. And then he layered on everything else, it looks like. It was just the two of you with this. Yeah. And you guys sound like a massive chorus. I really thought this was like your 88 album that you had your three soul singer background dudes because when you get into into the chorus, that's a meaty sound. You guys still have that. I know you've always been able to do this often compared to Queen, but they were slightly after you guys started it. We did. It was funny that Bohemian Rhapsody came out shortly after One Night in Paris. Yeah, we loved it. I think part of the reason why overdubbing, lots of things, is great. Every time you do it, it sounds better. But it also gives you time to think of something else, if you know what I mean. While we're doing this, we're thinking of what to do next. I would just keep doing this until the next good thought comes along. It can spoil it, though, overdubbing, I've noticed. We didn't do that a great deal with Barry Shoes. We maybe did, for the backing vocals, I don't know, a couple of overdubs, two or three. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think it's mostly just that you have a big, beefy voice and yes, <laughs> and you. can make it sound different. That's one of the things, like, I try to get on some projects, yeah. I try to get just anybody else to come and sing backing vocals. I know I could put the harmonies down in one second, but I'd like, it just sounds thicker and more three-dimensional if you have another person. Well, the combination of Graham, obviously, being another person singing with you yeah. and just you being able to warp your voice yeah. gives it a whole different dimension. Don't do it too much. I've stayed away from it recently because I've noticed that if you just keep overdubbing and overdubbing, you, you get mass, but you lose character. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's funny. One of the songs I had recorded recently, a, a guy who's in sort of a techno band kind of thing had said, you know what you should really do with that vocal is just sing it really quietly and overdub it just in unison like 10 times. And that <laughs> like, okay, so this is the Beach Boy. This is what Brian Wilson did. You're... Right. That's what's come back, and it seems to me that that loses the character of the individual. Certainly with a voice like yours, all the warbles are good. 
That might not be the case in my case, but... <laughs> Actually, funnily enough, I just watched that movie last night, like Love and Mercy, which is... Well, I quite enjoyed yeah. it, actually. Quite enjoyed it. I got stoned watching it, actually, without doing anything. <laughs> it's a very trippy movie. Well, and that's why it's hard to recognize Brian Wilson's voice, not just because he's older, yeah. but, you know, by Love and Mercy, that was 1989 when he was recording that album just because he's not overdubbing himself nine times, that that was just what every single person in the, this is at least what I had read, that that's the, where the Beach Boys sound comes from. It's not five guys that sound good together. It's five guys times four. Yes. <laughs> sounding good together. And I remember reading even the, the Beatles. I, I don't remember if it was McCartney or somebody, you know, when asked like, well, what made you popular in the first place? And he said, well, it was really double tracking the lead vocal was an essential thing in right. that that was something that makes you just immediately sound cooler. And I, at the same time, wonder why people don't do that more now <laughs> if it's so successful. Uh, I guess we have better reverbs. We don't have to do that. Yeah. Well, some people do. I mean, I kind of like doing it, but I kind of shy away from it. Now. If I'm trying to sing a song, I try and get it with one track as opposed to two tracks. If there's no reason to do a second track, if I can't get it in one, I'm not going to get it in two. It'll make it sound a bit maybe smoother, but... Well, in this song, you have the, especially toward the end, where you're doing a call and answer with yourself, that you're echoing yourself and adding yeah. the soul singer extra <laughs> flourish. Yeah. It was all done very quickly, though. I think we recorded it in, like, two days. We did, with all those songs, all the GGO6 songs, we recorded over a period of maybe two days per song. That's just a great way to work. It's like, let's not get hung up on the details. Let's just do the fucking thing. It was kind of too long we'd spent in 10 CC and many, many records just getting hung up on the details and getting this just so. And you can home in on these little things and lose the bigger picture. I wanted to stay connected to the bigger picture at all times. Well, the course in particular reminds me of somebody like Lyle Lovett. But Lyle Lovett's method of recording, you know, at least some of this, you know, Lyle Lovett's large band. <laughs> Lyle Lovett's, right. it's extremely professional musicians, a lot of them very well rehearsed. And the fact that you could produce even a fraction of that in two days with the two of you is great. You should do this more often is what I'm saying. I'd love to do it more often. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, it was a blast to do. I tell you, though, after playing drums, I was like, I was wrecked for about a week. I'd forgotten how strenuous the act of playing drums ah. is. I didn't exercise yeah. before it. I didn't even think of limbering up or doing anything to prepare. I just sat down and we played all fucking day. And it was like, oh, my God. I felt like I climbed Everest or something. Right, is there anything else we want to hit about the lyrics here? You've given the story. What is this transition of the barrier a liar? You bought them from him, didn't you? Here come the waves of disapproval. The waves of disapproval are from the elders, I assume, in the synagogue. Yeah. What is it? You bought them from him. I'm not getting this part of the story. Okay, is there something where I'm saying something about a greaser? What am I saying about a greaser? Uh, sharp enough to... The, the, yeah, the toe is sharp enough, yep. Sharp enough to carve your name in a greaser. I think what I'm trying to suggest is he stole them from a teddy boy. Okay. Yeah, he saw them, and he, this guy is tough enough and outrageous enough to rip the shoes off this tough guy and stab him with them and then run away with his shoes. But no, he didn't. He probably was just fucking bored. All right. And then just the fact that in this bridge part, you tried to get more and more excessive. The fact that dancing on your grave is only the fourth line in there. And it just goes, <laughs> goes worse. It just goes up from there. Laying in the gutter on my face. It's like the shoes become a talisman for me. 
and it becomes the devil for our parents. It represents anything to do with what their vision of a teenager is turning into out there in the subculture. It is everything that I describe in that section, ending with can't let it happen here shoots. It, it signifies everything that that group of people do not want their children to become. Now, does it say something about the priorities at the time, the fact that it seems like you're getting more and more objectionable with every line here, and queer comes after crystal meth, and yet, and only before end of everything we hold dear, fear of fear, can't let it happen here. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> so well, that's accurate. This was like, what, 1963 uh-huh. or something I'm talking about? So... Yeah, I don't think any of us knew what queer meant in those days. And if we did, it meant peculiar. Sure. So I'm summoning these images from my past and trying to give them some resonance in terms of what our parents thought they meant and what they represented. And everything in that list, and it is a list, just becomes more and more and more and more objectionable to them. Sure. And and it's almost like I'm throwing challenges out to them. It's going to be this. No, it means that. No, it actually means this. It's quite depressing in that after a certain point, the dream dies, at least in terms of the lyric, when JFK was shot. Well, even before that, what is this? Barry has been killed on a bomb site. There were still bomb sites in Manchester where I lived from the Second World War. Gotcha. Where no one had actually rebuilt anything yet. There was still some of that around. I'm actually fantasizing here. I'm actually expanding on reality. I'm using it to tell a story of youth versus maturity. Barry didn't disappear. I think he became a dentist. But what I'm beginning to suggest in that is maybe he was kidnapped by the elders and all that was left was his shoes and he disappeared for good. And that his malign influence on everybody was removed from us. Ah. I think that's what I'm saying. And I think that comes across in the end on the fade. Do the elders have something to atone for? Exactly. Okay. All right. Because this whole, he's on his way to meet an unknown friend. It sounds like the implication is that it's his wayward ways that have done him in, not the reprisals from the establishment. It's the fact that he was in with the wrong people. Definitely with the wrong people, which is why they did what they did, or maybe they didn't. But in the song, I think Gotcha. It's clear that I'm suggesting that maybe they did. Well, and what have they got to atone for? That. Well, and I like that the style is so consistent and you're pretty much just moving between these two chords for most of the song. Yeah. And that after the JFK got shot, we all morphed into our parents that it just turns psychedelic for one line that you know, a whole yeah, different little guitar. Cold, 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 cold. Yeah. Again, it was like, okay, we pushed as far as we could and then we gave up or at least most of us gave up. That's my memory of that period. We were all rebels while it was convenient to be rebels, but most of the kids that I knew when I was that age, they all did become dentists. They all did end up with a proper job. And to me, that's giving up. They didn't turn into the people they really wanted to be because it was too hard. Whereas people like me and Graham, we hung on to the fucking dream. We hung in there regardless and became something that wasn't conventional, that wasn't expected or anticipated. Well, and I like how at the end of your book, and I can connect this to our fourth song as a way of transitioning us there, that you talk about how, hey, wait, I run a business now. I've <laughs> run this thing about Whole World Band and the different things that 
that it's actually has a lot in common with what your father did running a yeah. basically multimedia electronics store. <laughs> what, freaks what? me out when I suddenly realized that. It's like, yeah, my dad used to sell radios, TVs, records, record players, tape recorders, cameras. And the, that was the life you were trying to get away from. And of course, you did successfully get away from You're not working in a single store on no. paycheck to paycheck. In that, that it's, There's nothing in common. But yet, you could draw these parallels and appreciate, really. Yeah, it was all there. And musical instruments, it was all there. <laughs> and now that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm coming at it from a different angle. But in a sense, yeah, there's a touchstone there. And so just to thematically tie it back, I feel like when 50s or... In the case of our last song, Lost Weekend, this is from the Consequences album that we were talking about. So this is side three of six. This is exactly the midpoint of the album. It's interesting that the story that you mentioned, which is Peter Cook just came up with this story and all the dialogue himself, right? Not for the songs, no. No, for the story part, which is not in what we're about to hear. That's right. That that doesn't even get started until it's easy to pay attention to that on first listen. So when I just listened to this, the whole Consequences album, like that was the thing that I focused on immediately because it's somebody talking and you can understand it and there's sort of a story there. But yet you were saying that it actually was kind of irrelevant to. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what it was about. The the whole, the whole Consequences project was interesting. It was a project that kind of got out of hand. It was the catalyst for 10CC to implode. Essentially, we began the project. It was just going to be like an experimental record to test this thing we've designed called the Gizmotron or the Gizmo. But we wanted to carry on doing that for a little while because we weren't being inspired by the songs that we were hearing from Eric and Graham. We fuck, we don't want to do this. This is where we want to be. The passion had gone, and our passion was residing in the Consequences Project. So once the band split up and we were doing that full-time, we had to make this amazing. We had to make this superior, extraordinary meisterwork. But, of course, it wasn't. Uh, It was just long. But we became stir-crazy. We were in a studio for, like, 18 months. One thing led to another, and another thing led to yet another thing, and let's try this and let's do that. And it just became crazy. I have no idea where the notion of Peter Cook doing something came from, uh, although I do mention in the book that perhaps it was a record company conspiracy to get someone older and wiser than us involved in the hope that it might help us finish it. But of course, Peter was crazier than we were. So it's basically like bringing in a Monty Python style kind of dialogue to give some markers for the listener, at least within this long musical. And he doesn't even come in until side three, like I say. So the song that we're going to hear here has been set up by the first song on this side is five o'clock in the morning, which is the first sort of straight ahead, like can be taken out as a single song on the album. It was, it was a single, yeah. And then Peter starts this story about people undergoing divorce proceedings, but there's a composer that lives underneath the divorce proceedings and we don't have to <laughs> go into more, but it's pretty absurdist. Yes. And you've got another song in the middle and then more of this thing where they're talking about how to divide up the couple's teeth and hairpins and stuff. And then this song, Lost Weekend, which you refer to in the book as this is the emotional heart of the album. And this is what I was trying to say is even though this is revolutionary in terms of the whole thing is a rebellion against what you saw as music that was too tame, that was trying to move on, do something cutting edge, but yet this is such a sentimental 
jazz. You refer to it as the porgy and bestness of it. <laughs> that and I had went back and listened, and the fact that it has Sarah Vaughn, legendary jazz singer. Well, yeah, what a treat to have somebody like that. That was amazing. I mean, uh, when we wrote the song, it felt like something from that period, and I think that period was quite influential on on quite a lot of the music consequences. Mm-hmm. We, we were operating in a different time zone. What's that Brian Wilson song? Uh, I just wasn't made for these times. I just wasn't made for these times. That's how it felt when we were reporting consequences. The Gershwinness of it, you were saying? Yeah. Uh, this was definitely a Gershwin song. I don't know if it was our idea to get someone in to sing it with us, but I think initially we were after Ella Fitzgerald. Right. But she wasn't available. And they managed to get Sarah Vaughan instead, which was, wow, fuck. I get to sing with Sarah Vaughan. I better be reasonable. Who was over 50 at the time, right? I mean, this was not... Yeah, but this is a singer, okay? Yeah. As opposed to a vocalist, which is me. It's a difference. So we didn't actually sing it together. I already sung my parts, as far as I recall. So it was just a matter of recording her against me. And wow, boy, could she sing. Well, and your big choir parts again, I think, are a high point of here. Your big, whoa. Oh, a big cabin in the sky bullshit going on in the back. <laughs> yeah. Whenever I listen to that, it does raise the hairs on the back of my neck. But again, it's from a different era, isn't it? It's from 1930s. It's from Gershwin. It's the Jewish blues. So again, it's, that kind of seems what a lot of being cutting edge in music amounts to. It's not getting more and more atonal. Although, frankly, if you're getting more and more atonal, you'd be calling back to 1910. Like, that's what they were doing. <laughs> be calling back to Schoenberg and John Cage and folks like that. So there, yeah. yeah, there's only so many notes and so many directions you can go. Well, I mean, you're being innovative, but you're also, again, do you feel like the Gershwinness of it was because that was something that was pushed into you at a young age? That was like part of your DNA? No, not really. No, that was not really something you were raised on. Okay. I do not remember listening to a note of Gershwin when I was a kid. There wasn't a huge amount of music played in that house when I was a kid. And the music that was played was probably like classical, or it was Bing Crosby, or it was Caruso singing opera. In fact, music wasn't a huge part of my life until I discovered it for myself. And in the very early days, the most important music to me was modern jazz. And I don't know where Gershwin came from. So was the thickness of the chords here and the overall jazz style, was that just because those were the kind of chords that Lal was playing at this point that he was into? Or were you, from a conceptual point, like, you know, saying, we got to make this sound like Gershwin? How does your songwriting role fit into this being the style it is? The song dictates what you do to a great degree. And this was a good example of that. The chords were very blue. The sound of the song was very kind of sad, almost like two ships passing in the night to... Me and Sarah Vaughan, not a match made in heaven, maybe. (laughs) But it sounds quite good, (laughs) if you can't see it. But once the chords come and the words start to come, a song takes on a life of its own, and you follow it. You have to follow it, because they're really good songs. They write themselves. They write you as opposed to you writing songs, for the most part. I think this was one of those. I don't think it took a huge amount of time to write. Once we had the tone and the mood, again, it just kind of wrote itself. And that big wash of male choir singing, which again is Jewish blues. That was just a lot of overdubbing, just me and Lyle doing it lots of times and weeping while we were doing it. It works for that song. I still find my lead vocal mixed a little low, though. 
is there going to be a remix? We're going to re-release. I hope this gets released in some form. It's kind of hard to track down, but people can hear it on YouTube if you want to hear the whole album. You'll either get it or you won't. There's no gray areas and consequences or consequences, as I call it. You either get it, either touches you, or it will kill you. One or the other. All right. I think with all, especially experimental music, that you just got to surrender to it. <laughs> That's the way to get into it. That just, it's going to do what it's going to do. Especially if people are listening to it on the web. That's like not the place where people are the most patient. That, that I know even when I'm browsing around songs on the web, yeah. you know, I will listen to the first 10 seconds and jump to something. You know, that's just the way the web is constructed to encourage that, that unless you have something to do with your mouse, then... Uh, Maybe what you should do is break the whole piece down into six-second bites and then release it on, uh, on Vine. Have them uh, play random order. That yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this is a nice organic hole of a song, and I'm glad that we're picking it out to play for the folks. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. This was a delight. <laughs> I'm glad to uh, be able to pick your brain here and hear some of your thoughts about your tunes. My pleasure. I enjoy talking about them. It's not something I get to do that often, going backwards and forwards through uh, the catalog, for want of a better word. But it's interesting comparing this song with another song and the reasons why they came and uh, the reasons why they came to life. No beginning. 
Well, that was a heap of fun. Hope you enjoyed meeting Kevin as much as I did. Though we don't yet have Iggy Pop or Tom Waits booked on the podcast. I hope you look for next week's episode featuring Gareth Mitchell, really interesting guitarist slash electronic musician, very artsy. And for number five, I was very pleased to talk with Jeff Heiskell, who sang from one of my favorite 90s bands, The Judy Bats, and has since put out some very good solo records. But if you want to hear more stuff sort of like this, and you've gotten through our vast back catalog of two previous episodes already, why don't you go to partiallyexaminedlife.com. Partially Examined Life is our parent podcast. I'm on it. We have a handful of episodes of that, specifically about philosophy of art. And frankly, given who I am, I generally sneak in some mention of music somewhere in there because music is my metaphor for just about everything. I hope you'll help me thank Kevin Godley for his time by checking out that audiobook, Hog Fever, and also the actual book that he wrote, Space Cake, which is only available on the iTunes store as an iBook. He wrote it that way so he could have as much multimedia in there as he wanted. It is super entertaining, very breezy read, gets into a lot of parts of his career, including all the video work that we didn't talk about here. Now, if you look at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, each of these episodes has an accompanying blog post from which I will link to many things that we talked about on here, to the GG06 site, which is gg06.co.uk, a link to a really good BBC documentary I checked out on the band 10CC, which does also cover the Consequences Project. I also want you to go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com if you want to get involved in some way. At the end of episode two, I invited all songwriter types to submit a song self-exam video telling the story of your song in the same way that you heard Kevin Godley do today. Why don't you email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com if you've got suggestions for guests for the show. 
If you want to discuss the stuff we talked about in here, I suggest you go to the blog post associated with this episode and write a comment. As you know, this is still a fledgling enterprise. We need your help getting off the ground. And a very low effort, no cost way to do that is just to go to the iTunes store, leave us a nice rating, nice review. And if you really like this, then put your money where your mouth is. You can make a donation at the website. Now, this and the Partially Examined Life are one and the same financial entity. And the Partially Examined Life has a setup whereby you make a recurring $5 a month donation and you become a Partially Examined Life citizen, which means you get to the back end of our website, which has a lot of bonus audio and things on it. And there will be bonus audio coming soon related to Nakedly Examined Music in particular. This might be extended versions of episodes free music by the artists that I'm talking to, and already there, you can get free copies of a lot of music that I've produced over the years, usually under the name Mark Lint, but I was also pretty recently a co-frontman of the band New People, so you can look up either of those names on Spotify or iTunes or wherever, or go to marklint.com, and there's just way too much music. All right, until next time, keep on self-examining, keep on musicking. Don't quit the business and just do video. Come on. This is Mark Lintemeyer signing off.